listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by the Envision Advisors at Your Castle Real Estate. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode. Today is going to be a fantastic episode. Preston Newbeard and I have a special guest in the studio. First off, Preston, how's your morning going? It's going great, Chris. I'm stoked to be here and really excited for our podcast today. I know. This has been one we've been talking about for a couple months and finally got all the scheduling, all the details figured out. Yeah, and a lot of moving pieces. Yeah. So what we're going to talk about today is we're going to start off and talking about uh, really the beginnings of how our guest built his rental portfolio, which involves some comic books, eBay, and a very underpriced condo in the mountains and how that helped uh, plant the seed to grow into a very successful uh, rental portfolio all over Colorado. Uh, and our guest is Lon Welsh. Lon, I'm excited to have you this morning. I'm grateful to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks and, for coming on, Lon. And I think most of our listeners uh, know who you are, but for those that don't, I mean, you are the founder of Your Castle, and it's one of the you know best-known brokerages in Colorado now. Uh, you're a very successful investor. You do tons of educational events around town. You found a First Alliance title. Any other major bullet points on your resume so people know no, Those are probably the big ones. Like, yeah. I could ski pretty well, but I suck at golf. <laughs> uh, well, we have that in common, too. I'm, I'm horrible yeah, at golf. Yeah, Chris doesn't have a great track record on the uh, golf course either. So. Oh, we have a lot in common, then. Yeah, well, I, I golfed once in the last five years. I have one broken window. Oh, gosh. Can, can you beat that record? No, I can't beat that record, so I'm working on it, though. Um, but one of just the, the kind of jumping into it, um, in a few weeks ago before this podcast, we were brainstorming some ideas as to where do we want to start picking your brain line as to like, you know, you're such a wealth of knowledge here, you got decades of experience, uh, and you sort of were a great outline that came to you while you were you're dreaming, right. um, yeah. which I think is just, you know, is so cool. But start off with how comic books, collecting comic books as a kid led into... It all started somewhere, right? And it's it really all starts somewhere. Yeah. It's a pretty funny story, actually. So we moved here in 1998, and my wife had just gotten out of medical school a couple years earlier, so we're still paying off a mountain of student loans from that. Yeah. And we wanted to get started in investing right away. So I, I think, like, what can I do to like, help to amass a down payment? I've got this huge collection of comic books. So my dad collected some comics when he was a kid, and I amassed a bunch of them when I was a kid, going to garage sales, and I tried to focus the collection in a couple areas. I'd build the collection where I wanted to, sell everything else, or trade to fill gaps in what I had. And by 1998, eBay had gotten enough traction. It was really just for selling weird specialty items like yeah. comic books or like trading cards for baseball guys. Action figures. Yeah. Yeah. Things like stuff. that. So I liquidate the comic book collection on eBay and raise 9,000 bucks. And at that point in 98, you could still get where I was lucky enough to find uh, right next to the gondola in the basement. So it had no view at all at Lion Square Lodge. Phenomenal location, really crummy unit. No view at all, but for just, I think I paid 105, 110,000 bucks for this unit. And this is up in Vail, right? In Vail. Yeah. But the thing was, it came with a parking spot in the garage. The garage like spot gold. was worth more <laughs> yeah. than the condo was. So it was like $11,000 down plus whatever my closing cost. So the comic book collection basically got me started on my first rental property. And that was the first rental property you... That was the first one. Okay, and that was a vacation home slash yeah. uh, short-term rental? We used it a little bit, then we rented it out the rest of the time. And then uh, two doors down, another crummy basement unit came on that was even worse shaped. So we bought that. That was really the first fix-up that we did. We got that one for a little bit less. So when you guys moved here, what was the first inkling that you wanted to invest in real estate in Colorado? And kind of what was the thought process there? Why did you guys want to get into that right away after moving here? Great question. So... um I was thinking about real estate investing before we moved, and I was getting stuff from the different uh, commercial real estate brokers for 
apartment complexes, I'm running the numbers on them, and, and it's, it's hard to imagine, like in 97, 98, you'd get like a nine and a half cap on just about everything. Oh, of course, man, you're borrowing- give to have that? <laughs> yeah, but your borrowing costs for like seven and a half. Yeah. So, you know, the, the way you generate wealth is the spread between the cap and the borrow costs. So if you're getting a cap at nine, you borrow at seven and a half, it's point and a half. That's the exact same wealth generation as being on a five and a half cap borrowing at four like we do today. So yep. it's, it's just as good. So it sounds like, wow, you're on a nine cap. That's so great. Like, not really. Yeah. Look at the spread, right? Yeah. The yeah. spread is how you really do it. Now, when you bought your first place, um, were you an agent back then? No, that was before I got a license. So okay. uh, I had a guy in Vail help me do that one, the second one. And then I had a guy in Golden help me buy a four unit really close to the School of Mines. I turned that into condos, sold it off, uh, bought a nine unit in Cap Hill. And he helped me with all those transactions. I'm looking at this thing. This guy's making a ton of money doing this. I need to get a license. So I got a license just out of frustration that, you know, I, it was hard for me to find an agent that I liked. I wish I could have met you. I would have never gotten a license. I would have never started the brokerage. Right. It's been great to do some deals with you, Lon. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it's turned out to be a byproduct. I thought, well, I could, you know, help other people with this too. Okay. And so walk us through, uh, you know, one of those first investment properties, what was that very first one in Vail? Because, I mean, you know, one of the things that I've enjoyed working with you and going to your classes on is just how you're great at optimizing returns. Yep. And in real estate, so much of the return is usually front-loaded due to yep. leverage and an appreciating market. So back then, where did that Vail condo, like, you bought it and where did it take you? Like, when, what did you do with it and what were the numbers like? How'd you optimize that return and your, your comic book investment? Um, you know, the returns on that aren't going to be great. Like anything you buy in the mountains needs to be kind of a lifestyle play for you that you'll okay. be able to use it when it's not being rented out. And if you end up with a, a large portfolio of properties, your kids, when they're older, they're never going to remember that you had like all these really killer investments. You made all this money and were able to pay for them to go to college and you know hopefully pay for their weddings and stuff. They're just stoked to get to go to the mountains and hang out, right? That's, <laughs> that's the thing. So you can't put a price on the sort of family value that comes out of having a place in the mountains or if you just want like a fishing cabin up the mountains, doesn't have to be a ski in place, could be anything. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we, we made, I, I think it worked out to about as much as we would have made had we invested it in the stock market, but we got to use the place for free. And there's a ton of value in that, right? Oh, oh my God. It's and like the memories and hanging out with the kids and all that fun stuff. Yeah. So we've yeah. had five places in the mountains now and four <laughs> out of the five we remodeled. And that's pretty much how it worked out for most of them. The The last two, we probably made a little bit more than that, maybe in the low twenties, but okay. I, I wouldn't buy a mountain property. The idea of like really crushing it, it's more lifestyle driven. Okay. And then, um, let's talk about one, like the earlier investments you, you purchased that was more just, you know, a straight rental property, more for just optimized returns. Right. Like one of the early ones, even before you were a realtor, talk yep. about one of those first deals and then how you've compounded that property into multiple properties and kind of how you grew yeah. from back then to where you are now. So the two I did before I got a license um, was that four unit in Golden that we turned into condos and sold off. And that was a reasonably decent return project. It took us maybe like a year and a half to two years, probably in the low 20% return per year range on that. And was that your initial thought when you purchased that was, hey, we're going to turn these into condos. We're going to sell yeah. them off. Okay. Yeah, I bought it kind of with that. And honestly, that's the, the, the broker I was working with, the guy, uh, Jim Cairo, I think his name was, good guy. Um, he, he actually gave me the idea, which is why I had him do all the work and get the commissions because I wouldn't have thought of it on my own. And I've done it a lot since then. Yeah. So really, I probably owe him like a, a royalty fee. So he'll probably like <laughs> see this video and like be sending me a, he'll, he'll be ringing the phone. demand letter yep. in the mail saying, where are my checks uh, plus compounded interest? Um, but then I bought a, a nine unit in Cap Hill at 18th and Vine, um, like 1905 Victorian, just gorgeous place. And uh, I actually sold that to get the money to start your castle real estate. So the return on investment for that turned out to be pretty decent. Oh, wow. Okay. That worked out great. 
And when you were uh, buying these, you know, apartment buildings back then, was it, um, did you have partners or was it just, just you, you and your wife? Uh, those two were uh, just Teresa and I. And then the first real transaction of any size that I worked on once I had my license is a good friend of mine from graduate school. I helped him buy a 39 unit at 12th and Clarkson in Cap Hill. And we bought that for $2 million. Uh, and at the time, we thought that was like all the money in the world. It was like a really stressful transaction. The thing's probably worth $7 million now or so. I'm just asinine amount of money. It's gone up a lot. Okay. So I was a part yeah. owner in that one. I rolled my commission into that. And I just, I, whatever change I could find in the sofa, I threw that in there as well. And that, yep. that worked out fantastic. That was probably a good goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. That worked really, really well. <laughs> so right around the same time, you then start getting your license. Yep. And then talk some about your cast real estate, because, you know, I always say a lot of our investors are familiar with your castle. Sure. We have a lot of agents as well that, you know, know your castle, have probably been to your classes. Give some backstory about how you started, you know, started uh, your castle. Sure. So uh, I guess going back one step on my background, I worked in corporate finance for a couple of years, went back to business school, and then I worked as a strategy consultant at Deloitte and Accenture for eight years, which was a lot of fun, but it was traveling nonstop. And all my clients were in the high-tech industry, which was a big party in the 90s. In 2001, NASDAQ crashed. Yep. 2002, all the guys selling dog food over the internet went bankrupt. All of our clients went bankrupt, and we all got laid off. <laughs> so I asked my wife, you know, like, I'm sick of traveling, you know, 200 nights a year. I could try to make a living in real estate, but I'm not going to make any money for a couple of years. Would you support me on that? Unfortunately, she said yes, because I didn't make a whole lot of money the first couple of years. Uh, but that's how I got into real estate. And then I was a production realtor uh, for a couple of years. I sold 97 homes, my second full year in the business. Wow. And that's a friggin' treadmill. That's a lot of work. It's Trust just, me, I know. <laughs> so I had a couple, it wasn't just me. Like I hired an assistant on day one. I had a buyer's agent, had an assistant, but it, it was just like, I, I don't want to do this. So like, like, well, could I like, build a brokerage because I had like a couple guys dealing with the leads I was generating, sort of like the system that you guys have. Like, yeah, I could probably do that. So 2006, early on in 06, I did the business plan to figure out, all right, well, if I got like 200 production agents, I could probably make a pretty good living at this. It'd probably take me 10 years to do it. So stopped being a production realtor, started recruiting people and building the brokerage. Okay. And I, I mean, I've built some business in the past. Some have failed. A couple have been successful. You know, more failures than successes. But the way you've been able to build your castle, like I say, has, has been super impressive. And just the infrastructure you have well, thank you. is one of the main things that made me so attractive to come, you know, work with you guys here at your castle. Yeah, thank you. Um, so one thing, actually, before we get too far, I'm looking at my notes here, Lon. Uh, in, in our uh, call notes, you had said... From the 9K comic collection, you probably netted around $2 million in equity and had two fun vacation homes. Uh, it took 23 years from 1998 to 2021. Right. So give us the high-level, you know, leapfrog of how, how that worked took, out. Yeah, yeah, how you did that. So I bought the first basement unit, and that was mostly from the comic books. I bought the one two doors down, so I had to bring like twelve or 15000 in cash in addition to that. So we had those for, I don't remember the exact numbers now. It was probably three or four years, we sold those. And our, our kids were really little then, so it was not practical to go skiing. So the money wasn't invested in Vail for a couple of years. Then when my kids got to where they could ski again, we bought two of them in uh, Vail Racket Club, which is in East Vail. Mm -hmm. And that was in 2009 and 10. Like, almost like, if you were to like look back and pick like, what would be the best day to buy in Vail? Like 2009 and 10 would Boom, be. Boom, right then. Yeah. Just by accident. <laughs> so we bought them both for like right at 201,000, 210,000 maybe. We renovated both of them. I don't remember. We sold them for one sold for three eighty. One's under contract, selling in a couple of weeks here for four thirty seven or something like that. Wow! So that worked out pretty well. And then um, we refinanced them, took out the cash, and then we bought one additional unit. So that's at Lion Square Lodge, right next to the gondola. I think that was two thousand twelve. 
Um, so that was just about as good. But yeah. we paid nine sixty for that. It's worth a million seven now. Um, so that really worked out fantastic. I'm just really grateful that we had a chance to to be in the right place at the right time during the recession and had the ability to do that. And did you keep most of that money? Was that you know the the first condo you bought was that money kind of earmarked for Vale and vacation homes, or after you sold those first couple properties, did you? Recycle the money else, down to yeah. here, or do you, do you even remember? I don't even remember, to be honest. I wish I could yeah. tell you there's some grand plan that connects all the dots. It looked like if we were doing this like in a movie montage, that's, of course, what we'd have to like write up, but I don't think it was really that elegant. Okay. Um, I think that some of the money came out of it. it I think I bought like an eight unit in Cap Hill and, an, and a 15 unit in Cap Hill with the proceeds from the two basement units. And then those got refinanced after we added value. That money went back to Vail Racket Club to buy those units. Those got refinanced. It bought the really big unit. And then we did a refinance on that, took out cash and bought something else with it. So it just moving on down the road. Yeah. Yeah. Just whatever opportunities present themselves, right? That's what you really have to do is be a little bit flexible. So, I mean, for your listeners, you probably have got a lot of guys who bought stuff like we did in 2009, 10, 11, and they're sitting on a ton of equity. So if you could take the trouble to refinance that and buy a couple more properties, you're going to have so much more wealth to work with in your retirement than if you hadn't done it. It's, it's just a really good move. Well, let's tell you that for a little bit, because this is, uh, uh, you know, from the classes from you and Charles years ago, with my eyes, hey, how do you tap an equity? There's yep. refinance and there's, you know, sell in 1031 to trade up. Yep. And they both have their pros and cons. And sometimes one's obviously a lot clearer winner than the other. Right. Um, but I've run a bunch of scenarios for our clients where, hey, a property bought 10 years ago now, if they refinance, it's a pretty poor refinance. Right. Because it's going to be a negative cash flowing property. It could be, yeah. Um, so how do you, how do you, like, what's the high level rules of thumb you use? Hey, when do you refinance? When do you sell? When do you tap the equity? Like, what's, what's your strategy your around that? Yeah. Right. So it's going to depend an awful lot on each individual investor and kind of what their objectives are, how much they enjoy this, and like how much free time they have. So I'm dysfunctional in that. I just find this stuff fascinating. And I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, most normal people wouldn't find it as interesting as I do. Um, they're spending Saturday morning looking at properties on MLS. Like, do you have anything else you could do with your time? Um, no. That's why the golf game suffers, right? That's why my golf game <laughs> exactly. sucks, right? Um, so if you are interested in trying to optimize returns and you've got the energy and the time to do it, then... What's worked really the best for me is to try to buy a dump. Ideally, you buy what what would be a fix and flip. And if you could put a tenant into it as it is, and maybe you're not going to get top dollar on your rent, but that's okay. Rent it out for like a year to year and a half. Um, There's no law saying that a lease has to be 12 months. You can make the lease term whatever you choose that you want it to be. So the best time to sell a house in Denver is in the spring. Ideally, somewhere like February, March, April, Mm -hmm. traditionally is the very best time to list. So if it's a fix and flip, it's going to take you eight weeks worth of work. The ideal situation would be your tenant vacates maybe like on December 1. And then December and January, you do the renovation that's required. Yep. And then like February 1, you list the property at the most <clears throat> optimal sort of time of the year. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what's nice about that then is that you've, you've owned the property for more than a year. So it's eligible for a 1031 and you can defer all your, your gains that way. And usually you'll have enough profit out of that. You could probably buy two properties instead of one. Okay. And at the same time, you've had a tenant in there, right? Covering some so of your costs. Yeah. I mean, you probably things, won't right? generate a ton of cash flow, but you'll probably generate some. Yep. Uh, because you're really fixating on this more like, how am I doing a fixed flip in a way that's really tax optimized? Um, so that, that'd be the point on it. So if you're if you're not that into it, that you want to like do a transaction every 15, 18 months and manage a renovation project, then you might just hold on to something for like five years. Maybe do a, renovate, uh, a refi halfway through and then sell it and then trade into something bigger. You just don't do it as frequently. The more, the more frequently you can do this, the faster the wealth is going to multiply. So are those kind of like two 
like two good guiding principles for listeners to go out there to follow is, hey, if you want to do shorter term stuff, hey, do the, you know, the 18 month kind of fix and yep. flip or fix and list um, or plan on buying a property, refi two, three years into it. Yep. And then two, three years later, plan on selling Yep. without getting into like all types of models and returns. That's just usually... really simplification that really gets you there. And okay. it's going to kind of depend on like, does your spouse like enjoy this as much as you do? Do you have like a lot of ob- obligations with your kids? Like we had like a period of time with our kids, like we were just like really busy with them and I couldn't do all this stuff. Oh yeah. So and yep. everyone's going to have a phase of their life. Like that is when you look back, like that's some of the best years of your life. So you don't want to miss that. So great. So talking about that now, just in terms of general, you know, you've been doing this now for what going on 20 some years, something like that. Yeah. Um, Identifying like, you know, trends in the marketplace, right? Different asset classes, right? In context with, you know, what's going through life in context with, you know, equity opportunities and properties. How do you see the matrix and like that? Like, you know, how do you pick the trends? How do you jump asset classes? Because we're okay. going to talk veil condos, we've been talking Denver properties, we're going right. to talk 12-unit Pueblo in a few minutes. Like, right. you're all over the place, and I mean, you have success. Like, how do you make that all happen? Like, what are the big trends you look for? As far as asset class? Just in general, like asset classes or trends. Like, kind of the, the strategy around, yeah. obviously, you've moved around between property types okay. and kind of just the opportunities that presented themselves. What has allowed you or, or what have you looked at that's kind of made you change and kind of move around the market like that? Man, I could talk about this for an hour. There's like so much in that question yeah. alone. So if you're buying something that's going to be like a longer term hold and you are going to refinance it a couple times to pull the cash out so you keep the equity really mm-hmm. busy, you're not letting it just get stale sitting in there. Which is great, especially um, in a market like Denver, right? Where we've seen yeah. the appreciation that we have. To the extent you have any success like in picking an up and coming neighborhood, that would help a lot. So in the you know, like 16, 18 years ago, Capitol Hill was really desirable, but it stopped kind of like at 14th. When you got to Colfax, Colfax was really kind of a mess, like lots of prostitutes and drunks and drug addicts and homeless people. There's a lot of homeless people there now, too, I guess. But And then as you got further north, it just sort of degraded. And when you got to five points, when I moved here in 98, I told my neighbor I had to go get my driver's license for Colorado, and I was going to go to the five points DMV to do that. He said, no, go somewhere else. You'll get shot. Like, <laughs> you go to five points now, like it's all been gentrified, right? Yeah. But it was easy, I guess, for me, and maybe I just got lucky, to take a look at just north of Colfax, and say, we're in the path of progress. There's like a lot of beautiful Victorians here. There's a lot of great architecture and we are walking distance to the Capitol in downtown. There's no way this place can remain like a mess like this indefinitely. Yeah. And I had no idea if it would take five years or 10 or 15. The answer ended up being closer to eight. Um, but I bought a whole bunch of multifamily kind of just north of Colfax, like south of 30th or MLK, okay. as close to the capital as I could possibly get. And all those locations ended up working out really, really well. Um, so that's one guiding principle that's parallel to what you asked, but wasn't embedded in what you asked. Yep. So the next question is, I guess, uh, like, what can you afford? So if you're newer, like I was, you know, <laughs> you're just kind of going through your sofa cushions looking for money. Um you're going to be looking at residential, like office and warehouse probably aren't going to make a lot of sense for you at that point. Yeah. But that's okay. Residential is how almost everybody in this starts. It's the lowest barrier to entry. It's the easiest to figure out. Residential is fantastic. a really good jumping point, right? It's fantastic. Yeah. So um, you want to just talk to like a really great realtor and say, which of the opportunities within residential make the most sense? And over 20 years, it's amazing. Like when I got into this, I couldn't get a house or a condo to cash flow. Mm-hmm. They were too expensive relative to the rent. So that was just like off the table. So multifamily was the only possible option you could even look at. There's been other phases in time 
where multifamily to me looked really expensive relative to the opportunities that were in condos, townhomes, and houses like 2008, 9, and 10, like you had to buy condos. They were giving the things away. Yeah, here, take them. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. I mean, uh, the the prices that they traded for, like in 2006, they dropped 70 to 80% off of that price. So you're buying like not even at land value. Like you're paying for like half of the land and the water tap value, and you're getting the building for free. Like you had to buy the stuff. We probably won't have another opportunity like that for 10 years, but if, if you have a long enough time horizon, you might. So take a look at houses or condos, yeah. whatever makes the most sense. And um, I think that there's... Uh, misconception a lot of people get brainwashed into us when we're five years old playing monopoly with our parents that the goal in life is to trade four little houses greenhouses for one red hotel and that's like what you're supposed to do Mm -hmm. it's not always true sometimes you're better off having a whole bunch of little properties and not having the multifamily. um you have to just like listen to what the market's telling you and just kind of go along with that once you've done it for a while then you've got enough equity you can make a decision about do i want to buy office or warehouse or stick with residential and then i think it's the same sort of risk return question um if you buy retail and it's a single tenant they'll talk about well it's triple net and they just send you a check every month you have absolutely no responsibilities whatsoever and that's all true in 20 years ago we all would have thought like sears or kmart would have been like a really good triple net to buy right and that would have been like not the greatest idea so triple net scares me to death but there's guys who've made a lot of money doing it just not for me and it's more for just that that single tenant risk well, yeah, you just don't know what's going to happen. Um, it could be something like bulletproof, like Chase Bank. And for $5 million, you could buy a Chase Bank in uh, Greenwood Village. That's like as A-plus as you could possibly hope to ever get. But they may decide there's a better location, and when their seven-year lease is up, they're going to move. And then and what do you do with your Chase Bank now? Yeah. yeah. You've got the infrastructure with a vault, and like the, you're not going to put like a hairdresser in there. Right. <laughs> with drive-through lanes, like, right? Yeah. So you're like taking a different sort of type of risk there. Um, so for me, that's not a good match. So I uh, traded out, of, I, at one point I had like 60 or 70 condos, townhomes, and single families that I amassed during the recession and traded them into value-add uh, apartment buildings where I was able to find them. And recently it's been very difficult for me to find value-add anything. I think we're uh, all seeing that in the market right now. It's a now. real challenge. Yeah. Uh, so I, I bought some value-add office buildings, like the one we're in right now might be one case study to talk about. Um and I was able to find projects like that. So the the pro and the con of like an office building, just as like one other illustration of asset class, is residential is really desirable. If you buy a nasty apartment building, none of your leases are going to last more than eleven months. Mm-hmm. You don't have to wait very long. You rehab the units, you reskin the outside, you put in a better manager who's got a personality, and you raise the rents a bunch. And like eighteen months later, you're out of it. Boom! There's your exit strategy. It's fabulous. Right? Yeah. Um, if you buy an office building, one thing that's normally really desirable is the leases are five to seven years long. So if you buy the building, you're going to have all these leases that are below market, and you're going to have to wait a really, really long time before you can raise the rents up. But running an office building is light years easier than running an apartment building. Yep. So it's a lot less stress, but it takes a lot longer. Um, so if you have the time horizon for it, like doing value out in office buildings might be a really good strategy. So unfortunately, I decided to get seven office buildings right before COVID launched. So that hasn't been like the best strategy, but uh, I think we've put back all of our business plans about three years as a result of that. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So kind of unpacking, because what you said there, I hope people rewind the last eight or 10 minutes of what you're talking about there, Lon. So right now in the current marketplace, you know, we're in, you know, which is, you know, super low inventory, super cheap debt. Um, what are some areas that you think are in passive progress that you that you're looking at or that you see from all day that you you like? And what are some opportunities in a residential, commercial that you like as well? Just from like a high level overview. 
So neighborhood wise, I'm now like like two months late in talking about this, but I've been talking about 41st and Fox for like six years. And I don't know if anybody's been listening, but like that's like obvious. So you probably saw the World Trade Center was going to put their brand new office campus in Rhino, and they decided yep. they're going to put it at 43rd and Fox instead, where the old Denver Post was. So that location is now out. Probably yep. too late now, <laughs> but it was like obvious. Like that was the next one. That was the next one. Um, Sun Valley, directly south of the Bronco Stadium, might be one additional one to take a look at. Okay. Uh, just locationally. What was the other part of your question? Um, just um, so those were like paths of progress. And now just in terms of like, you know, commercial, multifamily, small residential. Got it. Space. Yeah. Um, yeah where, where do you think some good plays are right now? So a lot of times you'll make the most money buying something that everyone thinks that you're an idiot. It's like when I told people in 09, I was buying condos, they would look at me as if I had admitted I had syphilis. Like, why? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> what is your judgment problem that you're buying condos? Like they've dropped 70% in value. Like, well, I'm not trying to catch a falling knife. The knife's like in the table and it's not falling any further. I'm pulling the knife out by the handle. Like, is it yeah, really I'll good? hang on to it for a minute. Right. <laughs> so office is in that same perception right now. Everyone thinks that office is just like the dredge of the world and retail is probably even worse. Retail, I'm scared of personally because I think it takes a lot of expertise to run retail well. It's not a skill set I have. And I think to buy something without the requisite expertise probably wouldn't be the right move for me. But office is not difficult. Like if you can run a multifamily, you can easily run an office building. It's so much easier. So what we've experienced across the seven buildings is we lost about 5% of our tenants pretty rapidly. Like guys, they were like gonna, probably going to go out of business anyway. This is just like at the acceleration clause. Okay. Um, Another 10% of our tenants needed to be on payment plans for the rent. And then once they got their PPP loans from the bailout, they all got they caught all up got and they've been up. caught up since. So we're actually current on all of our 160 tenants, however many we have. Um, so that part has all been really great. The challenge right now with office, at least like B-class buildings like the one we're in, and this might be a case study if you want to talk through as well, is that there's not a lot of showing traffic. Yep. So if you have a vacancy, good luck trying to fill it. Um, so, so you're better off trying to keep tenants right now and, and do what you can to keep them here. You've got to be flexible and, yeah. you know, try to be accommodating, just be as pleasant a person as you possibly can be, which is like yeah. good business practice anyway, but even more so. Right, just be a good person, you know? <laughs> yeah, make sure the snow is shoveled off the sidewalks and you're supposed to and stuff like that. So um, disaggregating that, if you have guys interested in office, the 500, 700 square foot and smaller tend to be one or two man offices. And those guys' psychology still seems to be that I've been working at home for the last year. I'm okay with working from home. Some of them are starting to go stir crazy being trapped at home, and they're now starting to come out looking for space, but mm -hmm. most of them haven't gotten there yet. I think there's going to be a whole flood of those people getting unleashed in about the next three to four months as the vaccines get released yep, I think at we're a broader scale. From 700 square feet to like 1,500 square feet is like a two to four person office, like a small like farmer's insurance like mm -hmm. we have down the hall. That, that'd be a great prototype or maybe four therapists that share a space. They're a little bit more active and looking for space now than they were, say, six months ago, but not a lot. Uh, bigger than that, we don't have a lot of space like that, but we're, we're seeing some interest, but not a lot. It's way better than what six months ago was, still not great. So if you're thinking about office, I'd look at B-class buildings. I'd try to avoid C. I'd try to go for the best location in a B building you could get. Have you seen a lot of movement from A-class tenants yes. coming down to yeah. you know, B-class type buildings? Just so we're seeing twofers. We're seeing like attorneys that were like in A minus, maybe like maybe just barely an A building in an A location in the tech center. And they like being in the tech center. So they don't want to like go somewhere else. So they're going to trade to a B building in the tech center, but they're going from 25 bucks a foot to 17. Yep. And they're also downsizing their space from say 2,200 feet to 1,500 feet. So like it's compressing their occupancy costs by like two thirds. Um, that's the tenant you want to have if your building could attract that. 
So if you could if you could get into office space now, I think it'd be a fantastic time to be looking at it because okay. no one's looking. I don't think it's like it's just terrible. Like it's not terrible. It's just it's delayed. What's your current vacancy right now across your office buildings? How uh, we're full. 10%, 30, 30, 8, full. So it probably blended 16%. Okay. Which is probably just about the average of the city, actually. Okay. What was like pre-COVID, do you know? Or is that hard to say? Because you were... Uh, I, know you're I bought them right before. I bought... Actually, I bought one and COVID had started, but we still closed on it. We were able to get an extra discount. And then we bought one after COVID really got to be like terrorizing in the headlines. And one of the guys who had an office building didn't want to have it because he was afraid of it. So we got that at a fantastic discount. Um, I, we were probably like, you know, like 10. Okay. So yeah. it hasn't really changed a lot from really 10 to 16. Let's a say. Whole lot. Yep. Okay. Now, uh, pivoting, this is a, a 12 unit that I want to talk about. You bought in Pueblo. I yeah. think it was three years ago. Yeah, it's probably about three years yeah, about ago. About three years yeah. ago. Yeah. I actually remember because I think it was actually uh, I-Core, you know, the yeah. uh, investment club or the investment Rockies. community of the Rockies. Oh, the Rockies yeah. They had a big bus tour, I mean, a 50, 60 person bus yep. tour. And I think uh, you and your cast and Charles, you know, co-sponsored it. Yep. But the whole idea is, hey, we, we met in Denver, the Home Depot parking lot in Denver. Yep. Drove down there, saw a bunch of properties. And one of the properties walked through was uh, a 12 unit building that was two, six units. Yep. And then uh, you walked it, and then, what, next day or two, put an offer in? Yeah, I told the guys on the tour that one of you needs to buy this, and if none of you guys buy this this afternoon, I'm going to buy it, and nobody, like, did, so I bought it. Yeah. Um, it was a pretty good opportunity. So walk us through that, because we, we do have the A-pod up here in the spreadsheet. So yeah. I'd like to actually spend, I know we got about uh, 15 minutes left in the podcast, I actually kind of, like, dig sure. some numbers here for, hey, you walked it, how'd you go from walking it plugging in numbers and then making decision so quickly and then how you how it performed the last couple of years. Right. Um, so this is going to sound like, well, God, it's easy for you. You've been doing this for 20 years. And I guess that's probably true because I've owned a lot of uh, apartment buildings and I've sold a lot of them over the years. But in this particular case, um, they had uh, all Section 8 tenants except for one. And it was a type of Section 8 I had never heard of before that the Pueblo Housing Authority would pay you about 200 bucks a month less rent than you'd normally get in Section 8. In mm -hmm. exchange for, if you had a vacancy, they'd cover like six weeks of rent during the vacant time. And if you had a tenant like a wreck a unit, they'd pick up the first three grand. Wow. So that sounds like, wow, right? Yeah. But it sucks because the tenants never move there. And most tenants don't wreck the unit on the way out. So you're paying 200 bucks a month in every unit. There's a 100% chance you're going to give up 200 bucks a month per unit every month for forever in exchange for this policy of insurance that you're going to use once in a blue moon oh so yeah so i just did the math like if all we do is migrate from the current section 8 program to a normal section 8 program it worked out to like 180 bucks a month or something like that extra and per you, unit per unit yeah. per month per month yeah and that that i wish i could tell you i had like some really great intellectual idea and i'm some einstein of multifamily but i'm not all i did is type six numbers into a calculator and said, all right, so let's do that together. So if we do, yeah. so for those of you guys who are watching this, um, just type in these numbers with me. I'm typing 180 bucks a month times 12 units times 12 months a year is $25,000 of extra net operating income. And I'm going to divide that by a six and a half cap. And that's $400,000. Which is means that's how much you've increased the value, the value. building by. So to simplify that, just put in one dollar divided by 0. 0.065, and you get fifteen, right? Yep. So if you learn one thing from talking or listening to this today, this is the one thing I want everyone to walk away from. If you increase your rent by a dollar, or if you decrease your expense by a dollar, 
your cash goes up by a buck. On a six and a half cap, you've increased the value of the building by $15. Like you have to think about everything you look at through that lens. How do I get a couple extra dollars of cash flow in here? Yep, because it's going to move the needle a lot more. It's amazing. Side. Yep. So if you have an opportunity to put low flow toilets, sinks, uh, faucets, and shower heads in, and it's like a four-year payback, a lot of people say, well, four-year payback's not fast enough. Do the math. Do the math, exactly. It's definitely worth your time to yeah, do it. If you're change s- out all your light bulbs, right? Yeah, you put LEDs get LED in. bulbs yep, in it. If exactly. you're paying the electric bill, for sure, you got to do that. Yeah. So that's really all the more thinking that went into this. So it took me like a minute and a half to figure out this is a building I had to buy. Okay, so that was your business plan. Hey, buy it, and then as leases expire, uh, we get moved off them that over program. to the new system. And did you have to do it? Could you do that unit by unit, or is that like the whole building was? this special section eight program. I wasn't sure how it was going to work. So we called the housing authority up and said, here's what I need to do. What do you think the best way to do this would be that we disrupt your tenants the least? And they said, why don't we spend, why don't we do this 14 months from now on October 1st of whatever year it was? And we just did it like all at once. Oh, wow. Okay. And then uh, two of the tenants decided they didn't want to do it. So they went somewhere else. And then uh, we just got two market rate guys and they were paying 50 bucks more than Section 8 was. So that worked out fine. Okay. And we did some modest remodels. And there was some deferred uh, capital work that needed to get done. So we took care of the roof and some things while we were there too. Can you walk us through the spreadsheet? Yeah. Um, so... For the everyone listening to the podcast, this will be on the YouTube video, and we'll put some screenshots on here. Um, but first off, kind of just give us the rundown of the spreadsheet, and yeah, tell me where to where to click. Yeah, so if you look in the upper right hand corner, you'll see purchase price seven thirty, um, and then below that you'll see acquisition costs and loan fees and stuff like that. It looks like the loan fees are a little low; that it was that should have been a little higher than that. And then you'll see the mortgage was like just over five hundred grand, and the initial investment was about two hundred thousand and change. Does that make sense so far? Yep, yep. Okay. So that is what a twenty-five percent down payment. It's twenty twenty-five percent down. Yeah, yep. So then, if you skip down to line one, where it says potential rental income, um, I can't quite read it from here, but you can see probably what those two bedrooms were renting for at the time that we yeah, got. Yeah, so uh, two bedrooms at six twenty-two and one bedrooms at five fifteen. So this is three years ago, guys. How does that wow. sound to you for rent? That sounds pretty darn low, if you ask me. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. But this you, is Pueblo, so I have no context. Pueblo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So there's a website, Rentometer, rentometer.com. It works in Pueblo as well as it does in Denver. So you yep, can we use go it every day. Pop in the rents. And the rents came back like at 850 or 900 at the time I did this three years ago. So I felt pretty good. Like, no matter how hard I try to screw this up, it's probably going to work out okay. So um, I think this is showing you the rents as of the day that I bought it. Uh, so that's in the green. 7250 is probably the rent. Uh, yep, that's. When you bought it, that yep. those blended rents, so seven thousand two hundred fifty a month, or yep. eighty-seven thousand bucks a year. Yep. So we got some vacancy in there. So uh, the vacancy number is really low because if there was vacancy, the Section Eight program is going to cover it with this program. So, so not you, a lot of risk there on the vacancy side. There's no things. risk there yeah, at all. Exactly. These rents. Um, so then it's just like kind of obvious. You got taxes, insurance. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna read these. Taxes about three thousand. Uh-huh. Insurance about forty-five hundred. Property management. Um, you said it's 10%, but you will try to get 9%. I I think, yeah, nine is what we ended up paying down there. You put a 9%? Because the rents are so low, they have to charge a higher percentage just to make it worth their time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Once we got the rents up, we were able to get down to seven and a half. And then repairs and maintenance you have at 6%? Yeah, we, uh, budgeted that we were going to spend some money on CapEx in addition to that. So that was just sort of for the ongoing. The other reason for that is if a tenant wrecked a unit, the, that 
current program when we first bought it was going to pick up the first three grand of it. So yeah. like how much are you really going to have to yeah. do when you normally underwrite a property? What do you usually use? For? Usually eight. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Over the long haul, that's usually pretty close. And if you're buying it like, and you know, it needs a furnace and a roof. Like I'd put that in, in addition to that. So okay. It's just like steady state. Assuming you have a good product, you have to start a good with. product to start with. Exactly. And then, uh, utilities, uh, three seventy five a month for water sewer trash is just under 200. So about 7,000 bucks a year. Yep. Operating expenses are 33%. Yep. Um, right about what you'd expect for a multifamily. Oh, yeah. Yep. That's right in the ratio there. And then your cash flow before taxes is 8.8%. Your cap rate's 7.7%. Yeah. So it's tough to argue about a 7.7 when your rents are like 600 bucks a month. Like, there's probably some upside to that. There's definitely some yeah. upside there, yeah. Right. And so you want to hear from, like, you thought, hey, Grim, I'm buying at a good cap rate with good cash flow, uh, baseline rents that are not going to disappear. Right. And just turn it, increase the value. Um, and when you were doing that, do you just underwrite off of you increasing the rental income and optimizing NOI, or do you put in like a lower cap rate as well, assuming the market will compress it? Oh, on the exit? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, well, in this case, um, we thought that the mid seven cap rate was probably about right. Um, this, this was on the MLS. It wasn't like a private deal and it had been on the market for like a month. So I wasn't like the first guy that looked at this. Yeah. So apparently, at least three years ago, that was a market transaction cap rate in Pueblo. Yeah. So I, I think we actually sold this thing like on a 6.9 cap or something like that. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So we got some some compression on it, but not a lot. Not a lot. I think that's just because the market in general has gotten better over the last three years in Pueblo. It certainly has here in Denver. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure, I mean, because look at the numbers in here. I mean, a seven, a mid seven cap rate, your debt service is at 154. Really strong. You need a I mean, 120. So yeah. like, that's a pretty easy deal to do. Yeah. The only thing that's hard about this, like, it's two hours each way to drive down there. So, you know, the first property manager sucked. So then I had to, like, interview a bunch of guys and then get somebody new. And then the first guy we tried to get to repair the roof sucked. So I had to, like, go down there a couple more times to meet roofers. There's ended up being, like, a lot of trips a to Pueblo. A lot Pueblo. of time. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> so you just kind of evaluate, is that worth it? So, you know, we sold this sooner than we probably should have because we could have renovated all the units and then switched to market rates and probably gotten like another couple hundred thousand of value. And I think that's what your guy's going to do. He's going to do yep. really well on this. Um, it just is not worth me to drive down there that much. I have to supervise all this. So we yeah. did the easy stuff and sometimes just doing the easy stuff is enough. Yeah. So what, your guys so, going to do really well too. And we left some on there for him. Yeah, them. absolutely. So let's talk about that. So you, you bought this with the idea about 14 months later, get off that special section eight program. Yep. You get off of there. 14 months later. And then we did about 10 months of run rate after that. So we'd have uh, like a good 10 months of financials. Okay. that we'd go under contract. And by the time they actually got through underwriting with their bank, they'd have a full trailing 12. 12 months. Yep. So it'd yep. be easier for a bank to really underwrite this and give great terms to the next buyer. Okay. Anything else on spreadsheet? You want to talk about the... That's probably the or... big stuff there. Yeah. And then um, if you just look at IRR... So there's a lot of ways you can evaluate the return. You could look at cash on cash. And some people really like that. You could look at cap rates, which are really helpful. Um, gross rent multiplier is a great just first cut. If you have like 30 properties to look at, GRM is a way to get down to five. Super easy, high level way to narrow some the field down for sure. But when you get down to being for real, like I think IRR, internal rate of return, is the only metric that makes sense because the gross rent multiplier, the cap rate, the cash on cash don't take into account appreciation. Mm -hmm. And if you're unlocking equity by being a better operator, that doesn't get reflected either. Only IRR captures the value add work that an investor can bring. Um, the other thing I like about this is that there's so many amazing tax benefits to investing in real estate that you don't have investing in the stock market. And if you're a realtor, then one of the first questions you should ask your investor client is, if you don't buy this investment property with me, what will you do with the money? What do they always say? 
stock, stock market. market. Right. That's what they always say. But it's like the, the least tax advantage investment class you could possibly go into because all the dividends are ordinary income. And if you're trading frequently, that's all going to be taxed as ordinary income as well. You can't do a 1031 in a stock. Nope. So um, nope. there's just like all these incredible things. Like the more you study real estate, the more you just have to do it. It's like Pandora's box. You just keep unlocking all these great, wonderful benefits, right? Exactly. So um, what you have here on the left is the worst case. The middle is the expected case. The right is the best case. The top is before tax and the bottom is after tax. So I always look at the after tax because government always has a cut. They're a partner in every deal, unfortunately. So most investors, if you ask them, how long are you going to own this thing? They'll tell you five years. So this model is written for that. And the way you interpret this is N0. That's the time of purchase. We have 220 grand going out the door. That's what we're wiring to the title company on the day of closing to purchase. Then one, two, three, four, five. Those are the first five years. What after-tax cash flow did we generate? Starts at 15, it goes up a little bit. This didn't model me changing the rents. This is just staying with the as-is rents. Yep. And then uh, the 450 is if we raise the rents and then sell it, like what cash are we going to get back? And the answer in this case is $450,000 after tax. That's if you don't do a 1031. So the 24% below that is just we made 24% per year, every year on a five-year hold with this model. With that model. So since we did it in two and a half, we made 48% per year IRR, which is, you know, not too bad. That's not bad at all. Yeah. What is kind of your target or your, your you know, base model IRR that you look for in a deal when you're analyzing something? I'd like to be in the low 20s. Okay. Um, from when I started 20 years ago up through 2006, I averaged about 24% a year after tax. And then what happened after the recession? You can't even count that. <laughs> just, just erase that off the off the it table. was so good like yeah. that's never going to happen yep. ever again um frankly now i mean if, if you are trying to buy stuff so you may have clients that are busy professionals and they've got kids that are like at an age they want to spend time with their kids they don't want to be doing a lot of time on investment yeah they're spending their time doing the family thing you want to buy something that's ready to go that's the path of least resistance yep. like if you can make 16 percent a year after tax on a five-year hold and do almost nothing and have a property manager at all just sit back and that's your rent money, right? That's double what you're going to make in the yep. stock market after tax. Like it's an obvious thing. So 16, 15, 18, that's all fine. If you're a busy professional, you just need something easy. If you want to like do some work, then something in the twenties would, would be nice. Would be nice. Yeah. Um, one thing I kind of wanted to touch on lawn and something that you mentioned, uh, whenever we were chatting last week before, before this, uh, podcast was, uh, you know, a quote from Einstein and, you know, about co compounding interest. So talk a little bit about that and kind of just, you know, focusing on the long term and you sure. know, things along those lines for our listeners. This is one of my favorite quotes of all time. So Einstein said that compounding interest is the eighth wonder of the world. And the man who understands it collects it. And the man who doesn't understand it pays it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> So I think that just kind of goes into, you know, looking at real estate, you know, in a lot of different ways, but understanding that it's a long-term play. I mean, you've been doing this for over 20 years now and, yep. you know, you started from your comic book collection and, you know, now you own seven office buildings, among other things. So I'm very grateful. I've been in the right place at the right time. So for, if you want to pull this up really quick, go to Google, just type in compound annual growth calculator, Cager. You say you type in CAGR, probably worked out. So compound annual growth rate. So if you just click that and let's just put in... Um, our today value is a hundred thousand bucks that we want to invest. And, uh, let's say that we're going to make 9% a year after tax in the stock market. Do you have one that shows you the, oh yeah, do the calculate future value. If you scroll up a little bit. Here we go. Yeah. So put your cager at nine and let's do it for 15 years. 
Okay, so if you have 100,000 bucks today and you drop it in the stock market, after tax in 15 years, you're gonna have 365,000 bucks. Not too bad. Not bad. Right, let's scroll, let's put in 16% doing an easy rental. 920. That number looks a lot better to me, Elon. So let's put in 24, if you're actually gonna do kind of the flip it every 24 months or so. It matters. It matters a lot. Yeah, yeah, I mean, compounding interest, I think it's a smart guy. Makes a difference. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lon, we uh, we're bumping up against our our stop here, and then we all got appointments here in a few sure. minutes. Um, any final thoughts or tidbits you want to give to our listeners and audience out there before we hit end? Yeah, two things. If you're new to this, uh, the first is just get started. You know, I think it's easy to get analysis paralysis on this and build a gigantic spreadsheet and just really make this difficult for yourself. Just go buy something. A small condo for 200000 bucks. Just get started. The second is get a property manager on your first one. Everybody seems to think they want to manage this themselves. Yep. They hate it. Their spouse hates them for doing it, and they don't buy a second one. Get a property manager. I think those are great nuggets to, to leave off with and something we talk with our clients about a lot. You know, don't don't sit on the sidelines. Get in, play the game, yep. and you're going to come out ahead. And I think, you know. There's the math. Know, yep, there's the math, right? Yep. So. So, Lon, this has been insightful. We're going to have you back on in the future. Um, what are some good ways? I mean, I know your castle has a lot of investor content. You guys are always looking for agents as well. Yep. What are two good ways for investors and agents to talk to you or talk to people at your castle? Oh, great. So, uh, go to yourcastle.com okay. and uh, click on training, and you can see all of our training events coming up. And anything on there that looks like it's related to an investor is open for investors as much as it is for realtors working with investors. So just invite yourself to come. We'd love to have you. And, you know, we spent, what, three minutes looking at that spreadsheet. Yeah. We have a couple classes where we spend a lot more time, go yeah. through a lot more detail. And uh, we can really give you the information that you feel confident that you can make a decision. And we'd love to have you. Great. Lon, thank you so much. Preston, thanks for co-hosting. Thanks, Lon, it's been great. Really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Really appreciate it. 